Hi there everyone, you are listening to Neurodiverse Talks and I'm Anthony Bodanovich. In this episode, I will be joined by Ryan Carpenter, who is currently head of content for an app development company based in Barcelona, Spain. Ryan, who just like myself has Asperger's, has had a very interesting career that started with him leaving the US at 22 to teach English in Japan. There, he ended up taking a job in the gaming industry and, despite being American, was even running the social media channels for FC Barcelona's eSports division. I'd like you to take a journey with me and Ryan, where we will find out what he has learned since being diagnosed as a teenager and how his perception of Asperger's has changed in general over the 20 years since he was diagnosed. Hi there, Ryan. How are you getting on in COVID? Uh, it's all right. Uh, the cases, cases are going down here in Spain again, so best you could hope for and as somebody in the spectrum uh, do you find it actually good to be in lockdown or bad uh it was it was a bit of both at first it was just so sudden i have family in the states and i was super i'm still super worried about them how things are going there and that was really worrying but in terms of like oh i i get to work from home and and set my own schedule and be completely in charge of of everything there after a month i am dreading going back to the office i really like the the schedule and the setup i've got going at home right now uh, i'm more productive at home uh i'm actually more productive out of the office in the sense that there's sort of there's an external push right if i can sort of get myself into social mode I can utilize that to sort of uh, be, be extra productive. Whereas if I'm home and something distracts me, like something upsets me or I, I fall out of my routine or I fall out of my groove, uh, there aren't as many external things to put me back on track. I sort of have to build those in uh, to the day just, to, just, to, just in case. Tell me, how were you diagnosed? When did that happen that you found out? I was 16 when I was officially diagnosed, that would have been like 2000, 2001. But before that, um, probably about five years before that, um, our next door neighbors, where I grew up in Montana, uh, they had adopted um, one young boy um, with epilepsy and some autistic features and another young boy who would later be diagnosed with Asperger's. So this would have been probably around 1995, 1996, and no one had heard of Asperger's. It had only been, I think it had only been a word used in English for about 12 years at this point. I don't think you see Asperger's in English writing until like 1983, 1984. So it was still really new. Um, and she handed my mom a, a book that sort of just described the children that Hans Asperger worked with, uh, you know, the little professors, I think he called mm -hmm. them and she went, oh my God, this is my son. Mm -hmm. And uh, she, she, um, she described that as a very happy moment. <laughs> Your mom and yourself? How did you describe it? Uh, was it was it relieving or was it like I'm not bothered? Um, I chafed against it because I felt like I was being put in a box, um, uh, a little bit. So I kind of, once I got diagnosed, I went out of my way to break my comfort zone, um, and mask as much as possible. Like I, I of course, you know, we all learn to mask as we get older, but around 16 or 17. I really doubled down hard on sort of trying to blend in and seem normal. And that would be something that could be something like doing drama in the school play. I, I was already in debate. And uh, so I tried drama. I'm not a great actor, but I, I still <laughs> pushed myself to do it. Uh, that could be martial arts. I had this thing where, where I flinched a lot. 
I don't know if you experienced that, but I, I've seen it in other people with Asperger's where a sudden movement can provoke a, fl a larger than life flight, or flight response, kind of hunker mm -hmm. down or, or jerk. And once the, once the other high school boys realized that's how I'd react, they're just yeah. gonna keep on doing it. And so I, um, I got tired of it. It wasn't like, it was just annoying. So I took up fencing, Taekwondo, Judo, like any martial art I could get my hands on that would have fast action coming at me just to sort of get rid of that response as, as much as I could. So that was sort of my response to, to being diagnosed was, was to try and reject it. Probably, if I'm being honest, uh, is because when, when they described Asperger, when they described what, what Asperger's was, and I, 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 my thought as a 16-year-old boy was, well, 16-year-old girls aren't going to like that. So I, I, I went and, and I did the opposite wherever I could until probably after college is probably when I started settling down and accepting it a bit more. But otherwise you kept it a secret because I guess in high school, if you did say you've got Asperger's, then they'd say you've got Asperger's. That's exactly it. Nobody had ever heard of it. Um, and the representat representation wasn't there. The, the science was awful at the time, I think. The only science researcher who was talking about Asperger's at the time was uh, Simon Baron-Cohen, who I think is like University of London. He's still in the news talking about autism today. I don't mm -hmm. know if he's yeah. familiar. And he has a lot of problems, uh, I feel, with his work. Uh, I think his, his, he has two ideas. One is his idea of his ideas of empathy and autism are, at least when he communicates them to the media, not subtle and inadvertently conflate um, Asperger's and, or, or autism and sociopathy in a really uncomfortable way. So that really confused me when I, when I heard, when I was told, okay, you have Asperger's, that means you have limited empathy. And I, and I would think about my problem. My problem is like, well, my problem is attention. Mm -hmm. If I, you know, if I, if I seem I'm, I'm unempathetic, it's usually because I just don't notice it's because my attention was somewhere else. And, um, especially as a, as a man, as a man, I feel that that lack of attention gets interpreted as aloofness very easily. So when you can't just be maybe stressed and not a hundred percent there, someone comes along and goes, oh, that guy's an arrogant prick. <laughs> and so the way Baron Cohen sort of conflates, um, having no empathy, he's like, if you're, if you're autistic, you have no empathy, but you have stronger system systematic thinking. I'm not sure that's a really valid way to talk about it, but that was the only voice that was out there. And. I think that's probably why I rejected it so hardcore is because I, I was told, I was told basically, oh, this means you, you have no empathy. If you have no empathy, that means you're, you know, might as well. I've had that case where I said, I've disclosed that I've got Asperger's and suddenly like, oh, I understand that in this situation, you, you, you don't understand it the way, but this is how we feel. And like we normal people, blah, 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 dumped straight away. When I'd hear that from a girl on the second date I'd, I'd normally uh leave leave the conversation because i thought i can't put up with this yeah no uh i kept it a secret uh because no one knew it people wouldn't understand it and and the words i had to describe it only made me sound crazy like because mm -hmm. i only really had the words of my doctor and of you know the researchers that were in the media it was really only baron cohen and if those words came out of my mouth i mean that's not great for a first date is Hi, I like control and I have no empathy. Yeah, <laughs> it, it does It does more or less sound like that. And then no matter what relationship you go into, then they say, oh, you are like this. They put you in a box. Mm -hmm. So I learned to sort of like, keep it down. And uh, throughout the 2000s, as more and more media attention was brought to autism, I, I kind of sort of thought that was probably for uh, the best. I feel it's really different nowadays. 
Um, that could just be my, my own perception. Yeah. So the, the, uh, I had a uh, really big revelation. There was a guy at the University of Wisconsin uh, named Richard Davidson. Who was, he wrote a book in 2010, 2011. And um, I had never really understood this lack of empathy thing because I knew I could be inattentive and not respond correctly. But if I'm engaged with a person, I'm quite empathetic, uh, sometimes overly. So, and that didn't really square. And Davidson took Baron Cohen's research and Baron Cohen basically said, well, when we put a, an autistic person in an fMRI and show them pictures of faces, the pictures of the face, uh, the, the parts of the brain that correspond to facial recognition, they, they don't light up, whereas they do in neurotypical people. So autistic people aren't processing the, these facial these facial expressions. That was sort of the idea. And then Davidson came along and he said, oh, wait a minute. How do you know the autistic people were even looking at the pictures? Well, they were in the fMRI. They were on a screen in the fMRI. Well, great, but if the autistic person is stressed out about having to deal with an emotional response, their autistic people generally tend towards avoidant coping. They're not gonna tell you <laughs> that they're just gonna look away. And so that's what Davidson did in his studies. He took autistic kids and then in the fMRI and he put eye tracking software in there so you could see where their eyes were looking and they found that that's true the reason autistic people weren't having these parts of their brain regarding facial recognition lighting up is because they weren't looking at the screen seeing the face created a stress response and then they look away and then Davidson comes along and he says okay if we tell the kids to make to look at the if we make a point to tell the kids to look at the faces and tell us what they think all of a sudden, it looks like a neurotypical, neurotypical fMRI. So the issue isn't that, oh, these kids can't read facial expressions necessarily. It's that looking at a human face creates a stress response. The child looks away. And so then the child never, because if the child is looking away from, all the, from faces all the time, he's not, he or she is not going to develop the capability to read facial expressions in the same way a neuro, neurotypical person might. So what we see as a lack of empathy or a lack of social skill is really the, the result of how a child adjusts to trauma that having ASD brings into their life. And that was a big thing for me where I could say, oh, all right, I don't have to be a weird, like I don't have to be in this weird box my whole life. Being autistic is much more. We're not always, you know, the, the Asperger's little professor, you know, for our entire life. I felt it gave me a lot more freedom to think about myself and it also tracks tracks with my experience, because I've certainly noticed that, yeah, I probably do get a little bit more stressed out with face-to-face -face conversation than, than other people. I, I, I don't know um, if all, I've talked to other Asperger, people with Asperger's who have had this, but I feel like when I look at a face, it's not that I can't read the emotion, it's that my brain reads that emotion as like 20% more negative than it actually is. I actually go the other way, the, like think that somebody's interested and I say, Ooh, that person's really interested and everybody else says, no, that person was actually rolling their eyeballs waiting for you to stop talking. <laughs> Been there, yeah, yeah. And that's sort of where the I found as an adult the challenge has, has been for me is I understand my perception doesn't match everyone's else 100%. And as a young adult, masking and just going along with everybody's perception, that didn't work. Um, and as a kid, going 100% with my perception, didn't work. So where 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 is the middle ground in um, how I value how reality looks to me? Because I, I I have to um, acknowledge that reality looks different to a lot of people, to, to neurotypical people, that they're not seeing exactly the same things I am. 
and I can recognize the validity of their worldview, whether they're going to be able to do that for me very, is a very different proposition. And I, I guess I don't count on people to do that. And as an adult, splitting that difference, I find, is, is where my thoughts regarding being autistic tend to, to go a lot of the time. You said after college, you started opening up and telling people. So how were you perceived at work? Would you come into a new job saying, hey, I'm Ryan and I have Asperger's? So I would do it. So after college, I was a teacher. Uh, I taught English um, in Japan for a couple years. And there I would tell my other foreign coworkers because, I mean, when you're dealing with expats in Japan, uh, finding an autist another autistic person is not hard. <laughs> As a nation, <laughs> Japan tends to draw people with ASD from all over the world, um, for better or for worse. And um, I would share that openly with my foreign coworkers. And there had been a time where it, it was a time where people knew what Asperger's was, but they weren't quite sure. Like it didn't have sort of a mainstream public perception. So people just sort of went, oh, and shrugged along. But we were all 20 year olds. We were all 22, 23, 24. We were all really young. There were no stakes. I wasn't going to my principal or my co-teachers and telling them that I, I, I had Asperger's. I would talk with them about how they felt about the students that had been diagnosed with Asperger's and what their perceptions were. But I was always very careful to, uh, to avoid uh, volunteering that I had Asperger's myself because in an international setting, I don't know if it's the case now, but 10 years ago or 20 years ago, in an education setting, in, a, in an international education setting, an, a kid diagnosed with Asperger's might very well be perceived as intellectually disabled, regardless of their actual intellectual capability. That was a time where when I would talk online with people with Asperger's in other, other countries, I would hear many young people say, oh yeah, I live in Denmark. And I, once I got diagnosed with Asperger's, I was sent to the special education, you know, where, for kids with intellectual disability, which was a, the absolute wrong place for them to be. So I, I, I had a feeling that there was, there was some sort of stigma. Like the modern stigma that I feel is different, but I had that in the back of my mind. So I, will, I, I was careful not to say it to people I, I felt had control over my future. So, so there was limitations and later after Japan? And then, um, then I got into the video game industry and I feel like I don't have to say it. People are just going to assume it. Um, I would, I would, I would say it if it, if it, I would mention I had it if I came up, but it was, it was pretty much a non-issue because I mean, you've worked in games when you come into an office and there's, you know, 20 socially awkward people all together who has Asperger's and who doesn't seems almost moot. Everybody's just kind of a nerd. And that, and that was, was pretty okay. And then I went back into education for a little bit and sort of kept it on the down low there. And then when I came to Spain and I started working in video games again, autistic had already taken on the use, uh, a negative use amongst young men by that point. And I was aware of the stigma that I feel maybe our generation doesn't have, but I feel that maybe the Gen Z certainly mm -hmm. has with the way autism has been portrayed in the media and the way toxic men online, and I presume in classrooms today, I'm, I'm not sure toss around the word autistic like i don't know my generation would have said said something offensive as well like we would have you know but autistic was not what you called the kid with emotional problems we had <laughs> we had another word to begin with r we used so being aware of that um i i, I sort of held back it's just kind of it's just kind of exhausting at a certain point so i i sort of took a step back 
And then in my current workplace, I'm head of content for uh, a Facebook quiz game. The person who hired me and who I, who I was replacing, uh, we went out to the terrace of the office for a, for a beer at the end of the day. And he just casually describes the company as, oh, this is a company founded by four mildly autistic people. And at my current place, I don't have to say it. It's just kind of everybody, everybody just kind of assumed like they're my company is uh, we have a lot of uh, alumni from Google and Google is a company where I think where it sounds like everybody's assumed to be just, you know, everybody's a little Asperger's there. Do you think it's important for people to disclose that they have Asperger's to talk, speak up? I do. I do. And I think it's going to be especially important as this generation that grew up using, you know, autistic and re or, or whatever, what, autistic screeching, whatever memes on, online there are now. The generation that grew up with those and using those, that's where the battle is going to be fought. Like, I don't think, I'm not sure there's much me coming out uh, accomplishes with sort of millennials or an, the older generation. Because the older generation, I feel, doesn't understand at all. The millennials are a bit better, but there is there is stigma from media. And then for the younger generation, it's it, it's they they have seen autistic peers receive support their entire life um, in school and in special edu in, in 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 education, and that creates sort of a di they have a different relationship and because they grew up with autism as a word as a concept that exists to them mm -hmm. uh, coming out is important for them i don't think it really i'm not sure maybe it does i'm not sure it accomplishes much necessarily in an older workplace but with younger people i think it's important but as i said my last job that's also what kind of why I sort of kept things down because i i recognize that they would have an association of autism that my my boss doesn't and if I want to maintain relation, my relationships, smooth, a smooth relationship as sort of a middle manager, it's best to keep that to keep that flowing. We're we're talking about your adventure with Barca Esports here, yes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I remember that when actually from the my esports days, because I was actually always the person going up front. I've got Asperger's. If there's a problem with this and this, it's caused by this and this. But I know that it, not everybody is able to come out with these things. Well, now that you mentioned that, that also feeds into it is my experiences with coming out didn't necessarily end well. I don't think I had meltdowns past 13, 14, um, but I would have shutdowns and I would have panic attacks um, from becoming emotionally overloaded. And as an adult, like I know myself very well. I know, exa I know exactly how to position myself so that I, I'm not put in a position where I'm going to trigger a shutdown or that kind of extreme stress reaction. But I didn't necessarily know that when I was younger and people would see a panic attack and then they go, oh, hey, what's going on? And you just had a panic attack. Someone comes to you to offer support. You think, well, okay, well, they're here to help me. And then you tell them, oh, I have Asperger's. Sometimes this happens. Sorry. I know it's a, you know, it's a lot of emotion, but I'll be, I'll be fine. Just give me a few minutes. I always found my relationships were worse with those people that I opened up to about it later on. So I eventually just sort of stopped. So I, I feel conflicted in that I want to be out and I, because I want to change the perception and really mm -hmm. that I think that's the only way it, it, it happens. People change their minds about a group when they meet a member of that group they can, they can relate to or that they can't simplify into a two dimensional image. 
I think you see that with the history of the gay rights movement in the United States. That after um, in the 80 in the 70s when people started coming out, and in the 80s when people were forced out through disease, and in the 90s through those 30 year period, people being public about who they were is what allowed minds to be changed. Because it's very easy to hate an abstract, but it's much 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 harder to to hate you know a, a person that that you deal with day to day or is part of your life. I feel conflicted right now because I, I just don't know like wh where things stand. In my current workplace, I've just kind of left it unstated just because it's assumed. In my next workplace, we'll see. Do you think it's been used to, when somebody knew about you having Asperger's, do you think it was sometimes used to your disadvantage? Especially when I was younger, after I was first diagnosed and I was a bit more open about it because I didn't know necessarily what it was. And I, I just sort of found that if you tell people you have a, a condition they don't understand, they assume the worst. So it never worked out for me. It always seemed to, more information always seemed to sour the relationship. So I, I've had these issues in the past where like somebody would ask me, knowing that I've got Asperger's, oh, what do you think of that and that person? And not like, I wouldn't say anything negative, but I just give an honest like analysis of that person. Then it turned out that it was used completely in oh. the wrong way. Absolutely. Um, that uh, was definitely uh, something that I had to work on uh, as an adult, that when someone would ask me a question, particularly if they would ask me a question about uh, someone we worked with or someone we knew, I had to take a moment and go, okay, they're asking, on the surface, they're asking this very simple question, what do you think about so-and-so? But really, they're probably trying to determine if I feel the same way about so-and-so as they do. So I always take a moment to sort of bring to mind consciously, okay, what is what is this person? What is their relationship to the person they're asking about? And then assume, and th this is another one of those balancing points that I have a difficult time with, assume that anything that I say that is neutral or negative will be interpreted as more negative or more neutral, or as, as more negative than I meant. So if I say something neutral, if I like, if someone says, "Oh, what do you think about your coworker Joe?" and I said, "Oh, uh, Joe's all right. Sometimes uh, I need to, I need to remind him to do X, Y, and Z." Like to me, that sounds like a very mild thing, but in my experience, that's then going to be interpreted being brought back to Joe as, "Hey, Joe, so and so thinks you're slacking off and doing a terrible job." Yeah, yeah. The, I, I've had, I've had exactly that. That I just said I thought I gave an honest opinion. And it was brought up in front in front of me, like, oh, you, you because you said about that person that this and this and this. okay, uh, yeah, um, that and that sort of thing. And I just have been I've built up a mask where the, those kinds of things I find I can usually avoid them. And I also find that getting older helps in a certain way, in, in the sense of how people perceive you. I feel that getting older doesn't help Asperger's, and I, I feel like Asperger's actually gets worse. <laughs> As, as you get older, but... Oh, I uh, feel like I mature sometimes. I mean, not with everything. With many things, I still think I've got the mind of a teenager, but I do think with certain aspects and the way I talk to people, I think I've managed to mature that I hold back. I don't have to speak my mind out on everything. That's the hard one, learning to... learning to. You don't have to speak out everything that comes to mind. That's my... That was, that was my big thing. I was very opinionated, as uh, Asperger's kids tend to be. Come back to all those social skills, and work it must have been like a difficulty adapting to certain things mustn't it uh yeah uh 
that was actually part of the thing when I talked about um, sort of rejecting it when I was younger um, and adjusting to new things. I almost got caught in a rut of um, never settling down into routine and never always being on the move, always going somewhere new um, because I had spent so long trying to deny sort of my, you know, the, some of my uh, Asperger's traits that the mask and how that integrated with me moving from country to country, from job to job, kind of melded together in a way that uh, it would stress me out, but I wouldn't necessarily consciously recognize it or, or sort of give value uh, to those feelings when maybe I should have. But at a certain point, if you, you know, you know, when you're 24 and you start a new job, it can seem like a bigger thing when you're 36 and you're starting your, you know, your whatever new job. It's like, okay, I've done this before. So I guess uh, I've just subjected myself. I, I tried to put myself outside of my comfort zone so much that that became my comfort zone. And then in the past few years of realizing, well, I can't be in my 20s, you know, hopping from country to country forever, sort of settling back down into a more grounded existence uh, is is difficult. Because that, the, you know, sort of the more, the, the traveling is my comfort zone. And the more mm -hmm. uh, normal stay inside for eight months, work from home thing is, is, is new to me. How many times in terms of like thinking about your career, because you did a bit of teaching, a bit of working in the gaming industry, how many times did you requalify maybe? Uh, I requalified uh, to teach in 2013 uh, in the United States. I'm actually going to requalify to get my QTS for the UK. Uh, here in the next year, just because the the qualification doesn't have to be renewed in the UK, whereas you have to go to you have to do continue mm -hmm. education in the United States. But just the once, I was one of the sort of benefits of my Asperger's is being verbose and perceived as I I've been told I've been perceived as as um, articulate and together and yeah, using my mask and using and understanding that perception of me and having Asperger's sort of taught me how to think about how people think of you. I found that um, I was able to get jobs without requalifying in a way that I could um, either relate it to previous experience or I could say, hey, I have the skills you want. Even if I don't have like what's on your job ad, you need help, let's work something out. I've been fortunate enough that I've been able to do that and not had to go back and do a second four year degree or, or a graduate degree. And uh, in terms of the jobs, I, I know this from my own experiences that I was always able to pull something out of the previous experience and bring it into the new experience, which was completely different. If you looked at my CV, you see, hey, this guy's been everywhere. But then, but then, you, if you take the dots and draw draw them, then you got a perfect, you got a straight line. Do you mm -hmm. do, do you have that? Absolutely, no. I, uh, I I feel until very recently, until I would say um, the past year or two, I felt the very much the same way about my CV. I had had such a broad range of experiences, but it was there was lots of lateral movement. And there were a variety of reasons for that. Um, working in video games and working in writing about video games, any kind of, of writing career in, in, in 2000, from 2010 to 2020, man, writers have had a rough decade. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not easy uh, to be a writer now, but would change these positions. And then when I would go to apply for a new one, I felt that my CV uh, was always good enough for a human being. It was never good enough for the algorithm that stood between me and the human being. 
the algorithm that would kick you out of the recruitment process. Yeah. Once I got, I, I, once I get into an interview situation, I tend to be pretty good. My, my, my mask, I find it very easy to mask for, you know, what, what does it take to, to do a job interview? Two hours? Yeah, I can, can mask for two hours, no problem. Make a good impression and that's okay. But then when it came time to, to explain my CV, that was always a very messy process. In recent years, I've, um, I've lucked out in that there is now this through line that you can see. Mm -hmm. um, but for many, many years, that wasn't the case. And I felt very much at a disadvantage when looking for jobs because of that. Just thinking about that, would you prepare for interviews? Like, you know, you find you, because I know like with myself, I would take a CV, I look at the job description and I just cut my CV to make it look good for each job, knowing that there's an algorithm behind it. And then when I had the job interview, then I just brainstorm in, you know, like get an exercise book, write all the potential questions they will ask me about my CV, about this or that, and about the job, and then relate to it, find a story. I'd have five stories and I'd pick the best one for the said job, which I could relate to. Would you do similar things? Uh, yeah, I would prepare a story to sort of explain how, okay, my resume looks like a hot mess, but no, really there is this, this through line. There is this, 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 um, building of skills here. So I would have a story ready for that. And I think I would do that. Uh, I, I, I would do a little, as I've gotten older, I do more preparation. Uh, when I was younger, especially when I was in high school, I did speech and debate and just my, part of my Asperger's, like my, my, one of my special skills was always verbal acumen and talking. So I got really good at just sort of being able to wing it in one-on-one -on -one situations where I was, where I needed to make a good impression on an adult, uh, which is the same skill set that applies for job interviews. Giving a, a positive impression to a peer, completely different skill set, not great at that. But uh, when it came times to that sort of impress the teacher moments, I had that down. Uh, I just I just uh, wanted to ask you about technologies come which diagnose we were diagnosed at 16 similar age I know that they have tools now which diagnose can diagnose autism in kids even now when they turn two I interviewed um, a company called Cogniable the creators of this app which you can film with your phone kids to discover if they got autism it uses uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence to discover this now do you think that that could be a game changer? So that technology sounds really impressive. Uh, it sounds really promising. I wouldn't be surprised if like machine learning could pick up on eye movement or something, or even facial features mm -hmm. to, di to diagnose autism. This one thing my wife always talks about, she notices, uh, she's like, you know, there's a look <laughs> mm -hmm. when it comes to, when it comes to autism. That does make me worry though because I, once you diagnose a child with autism, the question then becomes, what is this child's level of functioning? And level of functioning at age four, five, six does not cleanly predict level of functioning at 18, 25, 35. There are, you know, in autistic circles, we talk about high functioning, low functioning, but I find it's variable for me personally. I find that, um, I, there are some there are some times where I'm more autistic than others and trying to talk I have talked with autistic parents I, I would I would talk with support groups um, maybe about 15 16 years ago um, and then talk with parents and talk about the challenges that they deal with um, 
and these, I, you know, all these parents love their kids, they're well-intentioned, um, but it takes a special mind to really understand um, an autistic child. Like, it, it's not something that comes naturally. Mm -hmm. um, as a teacher, I think I'm pretty good at it. Um, I think about my parents, the, like, right now, if a kid gets diagnosed, he'll talk, they, they will immediately know that this child has Asperger's, maybe we need to pay attention to sensory issues. Sensory issues weren't even a concept when I was growing up and then, but it was something my parents noticed. It was something my father noticed. Oh, okay. There's something about sensory input mm -hmm. that's not right here. This isn't, um, this isn't a behavior problem. This is a, this is, this is something, something is up with the interface between the world and the brain mm -hmm. that we don't understand. And I don't think parents, a lot of parents, at least in my experience, naturally understand that. And so I do worry about how these apps are marketed and promoted. I'd like to ask you if you could say something to yourself when you were diagnosed with Asperger's, what would you say what not to do? I would say to be more careful with masking. I feel that after 20 years of intentionally masking, there are times when, when trying to, dis to determine where the person ends and the mask begins can be really difficult. Uh, and I wish I had taken sort of more me uh, sort of mental safeguards that I have in place now um, um, I wish I, I, I could teach those, uh, to my younger self. How do you be a person in public and not sort of change who you are to, uh, at a, at a, at a core level or lose who you are at a core level? I think that would be the, the piece of advice not to do. And career wise, what would you advise? I would actually advise to be a bit more mindful about my, my autisticness and how that comes across in settings where you would think you would feel safe. I can think of conflicts I had with coworkers maybe over a decade ago at this point, where I don't think I, any of us were in the right or wrong, but I, I was very gregarious and, and, and maybe a little bit overly perky and, and uh, talkative in a way that, that, that could be irritating and grating. And I would say, be mindful of this. Um, you don't have to constantly be, be, be displaying how you're, feel, how you're feeling if you're feeling something positive as part of mm -hmm. your path. It was great talking to you and catching up and uh, hearing about your experiences. Thanks so much. I'm, I'm going to look this up. I can't wait to check it out. With me was Ryan Carpenter, who talked to us about his life experiences and how Asperger's affected him as a person and as a professional. As you can see, we can't be pigeonholed as having one set of skills or emotions, and so we fit into more departments than just, say, IT. Neurodiverse Talks is a podcast that shows you the diversive skill set and potential of neurodivergent people. I hope you enjoyed listening, and I encourage you to tune into my other interviews that you can find on Spotify or Anchor FM. Here, you will get to listen to business leaders and professionals about their experiences and how they are all working towards a change. In my next episode, I will be talking about how neurodiversity and inclusiveness is making big circles in Poland. So hope you tune in for that one. You are listening to Neurodiverse Talks and I'm Anthony Bodanovich. And let's open up the world together.